0: Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindiewest.org, or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit. Take your Bibles, if you would, and go to Psalm 119, and uh, we're just going to cover the entire chapter this morning, so settle in, well, not really, but uh, really thankful to be able to be with you guys, and um, was saying to several people earlier, this is just like being at home, this is like being with family, and uh, Larry was so kind to talk about uh, our early days and uh, the connection between our churches, but let me just uh, set what he said rightly, um, our church wouldn't exist if your church didn't exist. Um, early in the life of the church, you guys already had a core group going. Our core group was growing, and our church launched. And literally, um, people that are still going here to Harvest Indy West came over and were helping us run children's ministry, and were ushers in our church. There has just been a sweet partnership from the very, very beginning. And this just feels like being at home today. It feels like uh, preaching to family, and so very, very grateful. Let me also say this about your pastor. Um Nobody in the last 12 years of my life um, has been used of the Lord at such key moments like Doug Helmer um, to sharpen me, to encourage me, to uh, just be there at just the right times. And uh, as we reflect on our friendship that the two of us have, um, we're just really grateful that God allows us to be in ministry in the same city and to be able to pour into one another. Uh, Laura and I love Doug and Karen. And Um, I know that you miss your pastor, and by the time I'm done, you'll miss him more. And um, and so uh, hopefully they're having a great sabbatical. He preached on the first Sunday of my sabbatical this summer, and so I'm really glad to be able to come and uh, share God's Word with you. How valuable is this book to you? How valuable is this book? And, And when you think about how valuable it is to you, why is it that valuable to you? Maybe it's because you grew up in church, maybe you went to Sunday school, maybe you came to Christ later in life and you've come to treasure the Word of God, but um, how valuable is God's Word to you and why is it that valuable? Um, How much do you live your life by it? How much is this Word shaping your thinking, shaping your living? How much does it mean to you and why does it mean that? Statistics tell us that in America, less than 7% of people have a Christian biblical worldview. Why is that? I would suggest to you because we are massively confused on what matters most. You see, when we start thinking about what matters most, we immediately start thinking about what matters most to us. And that's not where it's found. What matters most is what matters most to God. And you know where you're going to find what matters most? You're going to find it in the Word of God. And so this morning, I want to challenge you on what it means to be Word-saturated. I don't mean Bible-based. I don't mean Bible-centered. I don't mean using the Bible as a diving board to get off on your own thing. What does it mean to literally let the truth of God's Word pour into your life? Saturate every part of your life. Um, Just in 2017, Lifeway Research did an article... And uh, you're going to love the title of this article. Ready? Americans are fond of the Bible. And to that we would say, amen. The rest of the title we are not so fond of. Americans are fond of the Bible, but don't actually read it. Here's what they found. When they asked the question, how much of the Bible have you personally read? Uh, Here were the positives. 9% of those surveyed said they've read all of it more than once. Amen. 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 11% said they've read all of it, 12% said almost all of it, and 15% said they've read at least half of it. Now the other side of the statistics are this, 10% said they've read none of it, Um, another 13% said they've read only a few sentences, and the largest statistical area in this survey, 30% said they've only read several passages or stories. What that means is this, of all those surveyed, 53% have only read a few short stories or sentences. We are struggling mightily at figuring out what matters most because we are not living as word-saturated believers in Jesus Christ. And this morning, what I want to challenge you with is to figure out what matters most in your life and to be able to come back to this conclusion. Do you value this book for all the reasons God says to value the book? And does it shape your life and thinking? Because here's the truth. You can't be God-glorifying. That's what matters most, right? God being glorified is what matters most. You can't glorify God if you don't know who he is. You can't exalt Jesus Christ if you don't know how lovely he is and how you're connected to him by the gospel. You won't even be remembering the gospel if you don't understand why it's good news and how you enter into it. You will not be spirit-empowered if you don't understand who the Holy Spirit is, and all of that is found in this book. What I want to challenge you with this morning is that your life needs to be word-saturated. Most Christians in America today don't understand the vital importance of being in this word and letting this word drive their life every moment, and so I know I'm a guest speaker, and you're going to end up showing me tons of grace, and I want to show you grace too, but let's just not show each other grace on this particular statement. Listen carefully to this. If this book holds little value for you and me, if this book holds little value for you and me, we have little chance to succeed at what matters most. Do you agree with that? If this book holds little value, we have little chance to succeed at what really matters. Let's define our terms, shall we? What do I mean by word saturated? What do I mean by word saturated? I mean letting the truth of God's word, the Bible, be the final authority and daily guide for every part of your life. Letting the truth of God's Word, the Bible, be the final authority and daily guide for every part of life. What that means is this. Regularly locating the places in your life and in me, in my life, regularly locating the areas where I think I'm God. Where I think I've got it. And letting God Almighty, through His Word, speak directly to that. Well, Maybe it would be good for us just to maybe drill down one little more thing. What that means is this. If you're going to do church a certain way, it better be this way. If you're going to parent a certain way, it better be from this book. If you're going to have a marriage that is really going to last, you're going to find it in here. Everybody good? Word saturated, here's why, here's our main idea, Uh, write this down, this is the nail that we're going to drive all morning, from the passage you're going to see this, in your righteousness God, in your righteousness, I want to be right with you God, I want to be glorifying to you God, in your righteousness, give me life, how is that going to happen? I want my mind, my heart, and my life to be saturated with the word of God. All right, so let's look at it. Psalm 119, verse 33, I'm going to put on reading glasses, which is a new phenomenon for me. Um, Several months ago, my wife, who is four days younger than me, uh, was reading with her pink flowered reading glasses, and I picked them up to make fun of her, and I put them on, and I'm like, these are awesome. (laughs) Ready? Psalm 119. Note that these are not pink with flowers. Everybody good? Good. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. Now, what you will find is this. If you're going to live a word-saturated life, you have to take in the Scripture. And before we jump down and begin giving you some main points, might I just say, um, and from the sake of teaching, three things have to happen whenever you're taking the Bible in. Maybe write these three things down. You have to come to a point of knowing. Okay, you have to know, you have to understand the Scripture. Your mind has to be affected somehow. Okay, you actually have to bring in the content. It's possible for you to know something or know something about something and not really know it, namely God. It's possible for you to know about God, but not to know God. Okay, it's, and you need to have a knowledge. You need to understand the Scripture. That then leads to a crisis of belief, a crisis of submission. And there has to be a submitting to the scripture. If your life is going to be word saturated, it starts with your mind being challenged with the truth of scripture, and then it gets to the issue of the heart. Are you going to prioritize the scripture in your heart? And then it gets to this. You have to apply it. You have to live out the scriptures in your actions. So what I want to show you in the passage of scripture is that the psalmist drives us directly to those three things. Ready? Here's number one. If this is the desire of my heart and the prayer that would echo from it, here it is. I want a word-saturated mind. God, I want to understand your truth. Look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. If I want a word-saturated mind, it starts in verse 33 and verse 34. It starts with a posture of teachability. What do I mean by that? Okay, the posture of teachability is the willingness to receive. Like, Brian, where do you get that in the text? Where do you get a posture of teachability? The first words are, teach me, right? Teach me, and then it says in verse 34, give me. Note this posture to receive. We've been working with our children for the last several months, in fact, their entire life, on, on having a posture to receive instruction. Literally, do you have the posture to hear me? Because, kids, I'm like 30 something years older than you. Um, I've gone to college. I have a seminary degree. I've lived a little bit more of life, and I'm just trying to speak into how you're folding your shirt. Do you have a posture to receive? Okay? I wonder how many times God would think that about us. Do you have a posture to receive? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so just a couple observations from that passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Let's just go that far. Here's what that means. That means every single part of this book is from God. Everybody good? Like Brian, you're preaching to the choir. Okay, so here's the next thing. It's not only breathed out by God, it's profitable. So like when you're locked down in Deuteronomy in your devotional time, and you're like, ugh, mosaic law, it's profitable. Like I don't know how. Well, it's profitable in one of four ways. It's profitable to teach. It's profitable for rebuke or reproof. It's profitable for correction or for training. It's all profitable. It's all profitable, okay? What are each of these different things? Well, Scripture being profitable in these four ways means that Scripture is essential to drive us to righteousness because that's where maturity and completion is, okay? So we are taught what is right. We are rebuked or given reproof when we're not right. We're corrected so that we get right and we're trained so that we stay right. This is what God's doing in our heart. Okay, and I don't know about you, but like parents, we're trying to build this with our kids. We're, we're trying to do it this way. We've started to differentiate the difference between instruction and correction. Okay, so I'll say to my boys, I have twin boys, twin 11-year-old boys, which totally explains why I'm bald. right? Okay, um, and I'll say to the boys, this is not correction. This is instruction. I'm trying to teach you something. What I'm trying to go after there is a posture of teachability in their heart. I'm instructing you. Okay. Now, after the instruction has been ignored, and there is not action on that point, I will say, we are moving from instruction to correction, Okay. and I want to correct what the problem is. Usually, there is a reproof that is the bridge between the two. Parents, can I just speak to you for a moment? If you stop your parenting at the rebuke, you're leaving it short. Go ahead and help your kids understand. I want you to have a heart that is postured to receive. And what it means is, God, I'm willing to listen to, I'm willing to receive your word and your truth as you teach me, as you rebuke me, as you correct me, and as you train me. God, I have a posture of teachability. Listen, teach me, give me understanding. Now keep looking. Teach me what? The second thing you're going to see here is not just the posture of teachability, you're going to see the content of truth. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Give me understanding that I may keep your law. Now notice here, there's two different terms being used. The idea of God's statutes and God's laws. We have statutes in our city today. These are things that are prescribed to bring order. Okay, And if you violate a statute of the city, you'll get like a ticket. Okay like for instance one of the statutes of the city is on Rockville Road it's supposed to be 45 Now this morning as I was going near 45 down Rockville Road there were people passing me they're not understanding the concept of a statute okay that it's prescribed for a reason what's this talking about with law well, clearly, this is written to those who would have understood the word law differently than we understand the word law, okay? And in their mind, whenever they saw the word law and God's law, it would point them back to the idea of the Mosaic law, and it's like sometimes you're reading in your devotions of Mosaic law, and you're like, what in the world is this in here for? All these rules, all these different things, did you know God actually told them what it was for? Leviticus 19.2, that you would be holy as I am holy. And I believe that in America today, in Christianity, we have to get over our aversion to holiness. We have to get over the idea that anytime a pastor talks about holiness, somebody immediately screams out legalism. Okay? And we have to understand that what God is interested in is changing us from the inside out completely so that our position of righteousness and our practice of righteousness would absolutely match That's what he's going after. And it is a posture of teachability that then takes in the content of truth. Secondly, I want you to notice there in that passage that it is not truth that belongs to us. The statutes and the laws are not ours. Do you see that? Listen, teach me what? Your statutes. Give me understanding according to your law. It belongs to God. This is so important. If you want to glorify God in your life and you want to go after what matters most, you have to be going after what matters most to him. And the psalmist is wanting us to walk in the way of God's statutes. I don't just want the knowledge. I want to walk in them. So keep looking. This posture of teachability, which content of truth is poured into, has the goal of application. Look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And, underline this or circle this or put a bracket around it, and I will keep it to the end. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law. See that? So here it is. Here's what we see so far. This idea of having a mind that is word saturated, it starts with this. I have a posture of teachability that you pour the content of your truth into with the goal of actually having it change me. There's a goal in mind. I want to act on what you've shown me to be true. I want to keep it to the end. I want to keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And it's so interesting here in the psalmist. The psalmist is writing about the heart constantly throughout the book. Okay? And I love this because it opens the door that to this great observation, that the renewal of the mind leads to the transformation of the heart. But I would tell you that you will not be able to keep what you do not know. You can't keep what you do not know, and you will not keep what you do not believe. You will not have confidence in it if your heart isn't changed by it. Can I illustrate that? A couple years ago, Laura and I went to Six Flags in Chicago for our anniversary weekend. How many of you have ever been to Six Flags in Chicago? Okay, Six Flags in Chicago is a very old amusement park, and they have a bunch of old rides, and then they've brought in some new ones. And the new ones are clearly made for smaller people. Because after I waited two hours for the Superman ride, I got to the, I got to the little hut that you that the joy of life gets drained in. You know what I'm talking about? okay? And, and I get there, and I'm going to get on the ride that I've waited so long for, and I don't fit. Somebody in the early service is like, oh. And I felt good about that. <laughs> because in front of God and everybody, it's clear that I do not fit on the roller coaster. They have me in the chair and they're trying to close the restraint I'm like yeah you know what it's not a big deal I'll just go ahead and take the walk of shame and walk down the giant ramp that leaves it's okay and they're like no 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 I think we can get it shut I'm like no it's all right if you can't get it shut easily we're not going to try it and so they're like literally not letting me leave they're like I'm pretty sure we can get it shut I'm like it's all right I'll leave it's okay it's not a big deal and they're like no 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 and they called this guy over and I promise you this guy was 400 years old And he looks like he hasn't seen muscles in years. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, I'm already like sandwiched into the seat, okay? But I'm like, there's not a chance in the world this guy's gonna get this restraint closed. So he looks at me and he goes, what's your name? I'm like, man, don't try to pull the psychology on me. Just get it closed or not. And he's like, well, tell me what your name is. I'm like, my name is Brian. He's like, Brian, I want you to look me in the face. I'm like, what? He's like, look me right here. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, look at me right here. I'm like, why? And he's like, look at me right here in my face. I'm like, I'm, listening. I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you, and all of a sudden, he slams the thing shut, and my arms are up. And I'm like, hey, this doesn't work. He doesn't even turn and look at me or respond. He just says, take them. Now, what happens next is absolutely terrifying. And I'm not kidding here. This is actually like, this is probably the most, I I was just afraid. The Superman ride doesn't ride like this. It actually flips you over on your chest. So here's the thought. When you go out of the hut of joy that you were in, where the 400-year-old guy just managed to get your thing closed barely, that's now the only thing holding you from certain death. There was a thing around my feet, and that fit perfectly. So I actually had the thought, well, if this thing breaks open, I probably won't fall to my death. I'll just be dangling on the ride as we go around the park, right? Okay. For the next, like, three minutes, here's the thing. Honestly, I was fearing for my life. You know why? Because I did not believe in the restraint. How many Christians are running through life with their mind not changed and their heart not believing in the restraint of this word? And they're literally going through life fearing what's happening around the next curve. But they won't listen to the God-given restraint that says, run your marriage this way. Listen, the posture of teachability in which the content of truth gets poured into is for the goal of changing you completely. And notice in verse 34, the psalmist cracks the door open to our next observation. Give me understanding that I may keep your law, and then he says this, and observe it with my whole heart. You know, I think about the renewal of the mind. I think about Romans 12:1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's a big deal. Would't you agree? And I would just tell you that while the world is telling you because you're a child of God, you can pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps, listen to me, if you try to do it on your own, you will pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and absolutely go in the wrong direction. Because here's verse two, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the thing, what the psalmist is saying in 33 and 34 is this, pour your content into my mind because I don't want it to stay there. I definitely want a word-saturated mind. I definitely want to understand your truth. But the second part of verse 34 drives us into a second thing. God, I not only want a word-saturated mind, I want a word-saturated heart. I want a word-saturated heart. God, I want to prioritize your truth. Look at verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Okay, let's just go that far. The posture of teachability, content poured in, mind-changing, confronts the heart. And what you have next in the next several verses are several different words that deal with submission. Submission. The first one is seen here in verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments. How much trouble do we struggle with in life to be led anywhere? We have a family member that comes to visit us from out of town, from time to time, and my wife and I love this because they're absolutely convinced that they know where they're going all the time. The problem with that is they're not from here. And so what happens is every time we just start timing it, Okay, like we leave the house and like literally like click, here we go. How long is it gonna take them to realize and wave to us from the window? Okay, and we get out of the neighborhood and we get out on the main street and then like a couple of minutes go by, you see their car starts going a little slower, a little slower, and then the window rolls down and they're like, come on, come on, why? Because you don't know where you're going, right? And, and what we find with that particular family member is there is not a submission to be led. This is the same family member that like gathers all the remote controls at our house and like these are mine, right? Okay, and guys guys are like, listen, I don't have a problem with control, but you, listen, it's in the word, remote control, and you don't even give that up, right? You're like, I do give that up. I do give that up. As soon as the football game is over, I give it straight to my wife. That is not what I'm talking about, right? How about this? How are you doing with giving up control in your life? How are you letting God lead you? That's what the passage says. Lead me in the path of your commandments, How do you do that? Can we just get practical for a minute? How do you do that? It means day by day by day, getting up and saying, God, this story that you're writing is about you. And I want you to lead me in it. That you're not the guest star in my play. I'm the bit player in yours. And I'm letting you lead me. I want you to lead me in your paths. It means, Holy Spirit, by your counsel, your care, and your conviction, drive me to what will honor God the most. That's a word-saturated life. Okay, What you're getting to here is the submission to be led. But the psalmist immediately drives this. Listen, this submission to be led in verse 35, and it says very clearly, see right there at the end of verse 35, I delight in it. Everything that comes down in our heart is an issue of delight And devotion or distraction. And listen, as I'm led in the paths of God, I delight in that. But look at verse 36. The priority of value. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, verse 35, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The truth of the matter is what keeps us from being led is the belief that something else is more important or better than what we're being led towards, right? And what the psalmist addresses in the next two verses are the issue of value. Incline my heart to your testimonies, why? Because they are more valuable than to what I want you to incline me away from, selfish gain. Can I illustrate again? My wife and I have been married for 20 years this year. She is the love of my life. My heart is fully inclined to her, okay? And I remember when we were students at Cedarville University, when I first met her, the very first day that I saw her, my heart was inclined to her. I'm like, that is one good-looking woman, all right? And I remember, like, as we began to spend more time together, and my heart was more and more inclined towards her, and more and more inclined towards her, my eyes were less and less inclined to anyone else. By the way, dear friends, in your marriages, that is exactly how it will work. And if you let your heart be inclined to something else, don't be surprised that your eyes will follow that and you will be in the danger zone before you know it. Okay, What God is saying in his word right here is this. What the psalmist is saying is, God, I want you to incline my heart. I want you to help me see what is of more value because as you incline my heart, my eyes will turn away from the wrong kind of things. The selfish gain, like I want to, listen, this is a heart that is inclined, it's a heart that is submitted. I want to incline my heart to your testimonies, God. I won't naturally incline my heart to the things of God. I need God to help me with that. And the psalmist gets this right. God, turn my heart towards the things that really matter and give testimony of you. And in doing so, I will be turning away from selfish gain. Also, according to verse 37, it also means I will be avoiding distraction. Look at verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Now, what is that? When I see worthless things in the text, what I think of are like depraved, horrible things. Right? Do you see that? Like, do you read that? Like, worthless things. That's what we think of. Turn my eyes away from horrible, depraved things. The only problem with that is that isn't actually what this text is talking about. Are there other texts in the Scripture that definitely say turn your eyes away from depraved, horrible things? The answer is, yes, there are other texts, but this is actually different than that, and to let it be that actually takes away the sting of the passage that's done in the right way. Look again at the passage, verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. What he's saying here is this. I want to avoid distraction. I don't think this is just talking about horribly sinful things that you shouldn't look at, although you should not look at those. I think he's talking about things here that are worth less than him. I don't just think it's talking about the horrible sinful things. We know that's true. I think he's actually saying here is this. Listen, my heart needs to be so inclined to you that it actually turns me away from the things that are worth less than you. Um, I played catcher. I played baseball for three years. And there's a couple of lessons I learned. Number one, if you can't hit, baseball's not for you, all right? I had a higher chance of getting hit by the ball than actually doing that in reverse, okay? And the crazy thing about it is I played catcher. Like how you can figure out how to catch the ball but not hit it, I I still don't know, okay? Um, But I learned as a catcher, there's tons going on. There's tons going on. Okay, as a catcher, you're waiting for the pitcher to get comfortable, you're trying to give him signs on what to throw, your manager's yelling in your ear for some reason, you're like, I, I can't even listen to that right now, the guy's going to throw a ball at my head, then the guy's trying to steal over here, and listen, there's tons of stuff going on, but in the moment that pitcher goes into the windup, there better be one thing going on. Everything else is worth less than the 100 mile an hour pitch coming at your face. Everybody agree? We need that kind of mindset when it comes to the things of God. It isn't that there aren't other important things. It is just that they are worth less than what matters the most. And that's what he's saying. Maybe we should get some application here. What distractions are keeping you from knowing God in his way? What distractions, what things that are just worth less? they're They're not without any value, but they're just worth less than knowing him and living for him. Maybe if I could suggest a few. Um, What about your crazy schedule? We have five children. Our youngest is eight. Our oldest is 15. And they are busy. We go to lacrosse games. We go to cross-country meets. Cross-country blows my mind. Can I just tell you this? Who would pick that as a sport? (laughs) Like, if you're like, I got an idea. It's a great sport for you. You're just going to go run for like, I don't know, a while. I'm like, ah, yeah, no, I'm going to not do that right? Like, that's not really a sport. That's like punishment of a sport, okay? And, and so, like, my kids do that, and so we go all over for these cross-country meets and stuff like that. And uh, with five children, we're super, super busy. We have a crazy schedule, and I'm quite convinced that my schedule isn't any less crazy than yours is. But wait a minute, in all of the crazy schedule, is it possible that I'm spending my attention and my time doing things that are worth less than knowing God and having my life saturated by his word? Maybe a couple other things. What about if you're going from meeting to meeting to meeting? What about if you're caring about what someone else thinks about you? What about getting to the gym? What about needing to prioritize that hobby that you think is so important? Listen, those things aren't worthless. They're not worthless. They're not lacking in value. Wouldn't you agree with that? They're not lacking in value. They are just worth less than knowing God and having our heart inclined to him. This is where the rubber really begins to hit the road. It's a point of priority and a point of submitting our heart to God that, listen, God, what matters most to you is what's gonna matter most to me, and I wanna find it in this book. And so I don't wanna just have a word-saturated mind. I wanna have a word-saturated heart. Note that in verse 35, verse 36, and verse 37, there is a submission to ask God to do something in us and for us look at it verse 35 ready lead me there's verse 36 incline my heart verse 37 turn my eyes see the submission there it's not i'm turning my eyes i'm inclining it's literally god lead me incline my heart it is a submission of the heart god you're in control my heart is submitted and your word is prioritized. I want it to saturate every part of who I am. Why? Because I want the word saturated life. What does the word saturated life look at? Look like? Look at verse 34 again. I want you to see a pattern in the psalm here. This is so great in how the psalmist writes. In verse 34 and in verse 37, he opens up the next section. Look at verse 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law This is in the part about talking about the mind, right? And look at what it says. And observe it with my whole heart. See how he opens up? Listen, I want you to change my mind because eventually my heart needs to change. Do you see that? Now look at verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life according to your ways. See how he opens the door? Here's the thing. I want a word-saturated mind. I want a word-saturated heart. And here's why. Because ultimately, I want a word-saturated life. What does the word saturated life actually look like? As the mind is transformed, as the heart is changed, as submission is taking place, what does it then look like? It looks like, number one, fearing God. This is a life of fearing God. Look at verse 38. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Now, I grew up in the church, and I used to always hear this. Fearing God means having an awe and respect of God. It doesn't mean being scared of God. That's what I used to always hear. Okay, and the reason they tell kids that is they don't want kids to be fearful of God in a scared kind of way, right? Like, God isn't the boogeyman under your bed that you have to be scared of. Everybody agree with that? Okay, and so for years, it was like, listen, it doesn't mean scared, it means respect and awe. And in tons of places in the Bible, it does mean respect and awe. I just would have to believe that it's not an either or. Might I illustrate again? I am not a huge fan of snakes, okay? In fact, I don't like them at all. I am genuinely fearful of them. A couple weeks ago, we were uh, sitting at a cookout with some friends of ours, and my two twin boys had gone down to the creek bed, and they came back with a snake. And I didn't see it until they were standing right here. And they said, Dad, look, a snake. And I'm like, this is just outright rebellion. <laughs> this, is, this is Calvinism point one, total depravity being displayed. Get it away from me before I kill you and the snake and everything included. Okay, now here's why. I should give you background to this. I'm not overly concerned with the, the, the snake from the creek bed in Indiana. I didn't grow up here. I grew up where there are copperheads and water moccasins and rattlesnakes. And so here's the deal. Things here could bite you and you get an infection. Ooh. Things there can bite you and you die. All right, And so here's what I can remember. Copperhead at my feet. Do I fear you in the respect and awe kind of way? Yes. I back away from you in great respect for where you're at. Why? Because I am fearful and scared that you're going to bite me. Here's the thing. I believe when it comes to the fear of God, we would do well to have a biblically well-orbed view that actually has both. Why aren't we scared of a God who punishes sin? Wouldn't we crave holiness and live in greater gratitude when we understand how scared we should be of a God who punishes every single sin that ever exists? Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, ready for this, against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Shouldn't that produce a right scared And I would just tell you that I think the fear of respect and awe comes when the fear of being scared is in the right place. Because here's the deal. when Knowing that God's going to punish every sin, every bit of unrighteousness, and being scared of that, then automatically makes the grace and mercy of God shine when he's like, by the way, while you were still a sinner and definitely getting the wrath, I sent my son to soak up all of it. See, the fear and the awe, it comes. This is the life of being. Where where do I find all the stuff about fearing God? I find it in this book. The life that is word saturated is the life of fearing God. What does he say here? Verse 38, confirm to your servant your promise. Now, it's interesting. We don't know totally who wrote Psalm 119, but I'm going to lean towards David, even though it falls outside of the typical Davidic Psalms. I'm going to lean towards David, and I think this verse actually talks about why. Confirm to your servant your promise. The word promise there is either yet another word for statutes, law, testimonies, truth, and it's either generic, and it could be any author writing that, or it could be David with one giant promise in his head which is this, there will be one who will come from your line that will sit on your throne forever. And so here's what it is. Listen, confirm your truth. Confirm your promises. God, you have it under control. You know what righteousness looks like. You know what it's supposed to be. Listen, we will not go after a life of righteousness if we don't see the confirmation of the truth God includes. And the fact that that leads us to fear him. Verse 39. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Here's the life that is word-saturated. It's a life of fearing God. It's a life that understands the reality of rules. Turn away the reproach that I dread. What is the word reproach? We don't use that word. If, If somebody was walking around today and they're like, I have such reproach for you. Like, ah, calm it down. You're being a little too dramatic. Right? Use words we know. The word reproach means disapproval or disappointed. Okay? And the truth of the matter is, our God is disproving and is disappointed by our sin, right? Okay, and what the psalmist says is turn away the reproach that I dread. I dread your disappointment. I dread your disappointment. Help me to know that your rules are good. This brings up a key truth. Our disobedience before God brings the reproach, but we need to understand that his rules are good. Remember, I said before, it's either delight. Or it's disappointment? Consider the rules of God. The psalmist is saying the rules are good. God's given us rules, standards to live by, and every rule he gives us, look at me here, friends, every rule he gives us is good because he is good. And it is for our good. Teenagers sitting in this room, would you think the Bible is just a book of rules, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, I'm gonna challenge you to be word-saturated and open the book and start reading and what you'll find is every single one of the rules you do find reveals a God who loves you so much. And every single rule is good because our God is good and it's for your good. Might I just simply illustrate that? If you want the kind of relationships that matter and last, they have to be by God's rules. If you wanna have the kind of marriage that really makes it through all the days, it has to be by God's rules. If you want finances to go the way it should go and last for the right kind of things for eternity, it has to be able to go by God's rules. Listen, if you want to pursue purity, it has to be by his rules. If you want to do church, it has to do by his rules. Why? Because in every single one of those rules, you are choosing delight or disappointment. Which one would you choose? And the psalmist has come to the understanding because my mind is saturated with the truth. My heart is saturated with the truth. I want my life to be saturated with the word of God. And what that means is there's the reality that rules are good. I'll just be honest. Most of us have such an aversion to rules. Look at me. And what that means is we inherently don't understand that rules are good, and so we have an aversion to good. The psalmist is like, listen. Turn away the reproach. That I, I don't want you to be disappointed. I want my life to be marked by fearing you. I don't want you to be disappointed. I don't want your disapproval. I know that your rules are good. I know that your promises are firm and they are confirmed. Behold, I long for your precepts. Listen, I don't know about you, but I I, I don't want the disappointment. I want the delight, and so I want the rules, because I want the life of righteousness, word saturated. Here's the last thing. Note this life of being word saturated. Listen, it's fearing God. It's understanding the rightness of rules. But listen, here's the last thing. It's longing for the truth. When I think of the word saturated, here's what I I don't think of. When I think of the word saturated, I don't think of like a little little bit of water. I think of like Niagara Falls, okay? Okay. Um, we have a dog that does not drink water at all during the day, and that at night, she basically drinks all the water in the county, okay? And you're like, um, can you please, I can't even watch TV because the dog is drinking so much water, okay? And it's just this, this, this horrible noise for, like, it seems like hours on end. I'm like, can you just, like, pick the water bowl up, Okay? <laughs> And, and, and here, like, why do you famish yourself all day long? And you're like, I gotta have water. And you like run over there and you drink it over and over and over again. That is the picture of our spiritual life. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Man, listen, God, give me a longing for your truth. Let me long for it. Let me desire it so much. Behold, I long for your precepts. Why? Because in your righteousness, I want you to give me life. Listen, will you be content with your own life, of your own doing, or do you want the life of righteousness that God gives? If you're going to go after what matters most, listen to me, you have to go after word-saturated living. What matters most is that God is glorified. Do you agree with that? What matters most is that God is glorified, and in that, that Christ is exalted. That your life is changed by the gospel, the good news, that it is empowered every day. Listen, nothing you're going to do is going to last for eternity. Nothing's going to have eternal value unless it is empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Listen, where do we find all of that truth? It's in the Word of God. It's in the Word of God. And what you see in this psalm is this. God, I want to have a word-saturated mind. Help me to understand your truth. God, I want to have a word-saturated heart. Help me to submit to you. Why? Because God, I want what matters most. I want your glory. I want to exalt your son. I want to be empowered by your spirit. I want to be living in the light of the gospel. And what that means is, I want a word-saturated life. God, give me these things. How can you have a word-saturated How can you have a word saturated life? I'll end with this. Ezra 710 says this about Ezra. Ezra set his heart to study the law and to do it and to teach it to Israel. I think in American Christianity, we talk way too much about getting to the teaching. How about just simply this? How about just setting our heart? How about just in church this morning, not just agreeing with me? How about applying the word of God? How about, how about setting the heart? How about before we leave this room? God, I need your rules. God, I want you to saturate my heart. God, I want to submit to you. The greatest truth of the scripture is this, that every page points to Jesus Christ. and You cannot, you cannot have eternal life by your works. But God loves you so much, and this is what this book reveals, that if you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus, that God loves you so much that Jesus came and died on the cross, paid for all of your sins so that you could have eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life. That's what this book reveals. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your step towards word-saturated living is setting your heart and giving it to Jesus. For many, many of you in this room, listen, you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, but how about this? How much does this book mean to you How much of your life is it driving? How about today, setting your heart? God, I want a word-saturated mind. I want a word-saturated heart because I want a word-saturated life. And I'm gonna nail that down. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. You tell us that your word never comes back void. So God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, Bring counsel and care and conviction. That in this moment, while I'm praying, God, that you would allow us to not just come to church and agree, but that we would come with a desire to be changed. And that we would be like Ezra, who the word says was pleasing in your eyes. Because he lived a word-saturated life. That in this moment, that we wouldn't be thinking about a hundred other things, we would just be thinking about this thing. God, we want to set our hearts. what matters the most, to glorify you. And what that means is we need to be saturated with your truth. God, help us to set our hearts in a way that honors you. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.